This podcast is brought to you by Fear Free, the initiative that takes the pet out of petrified and puts treat into treatment. Learn more at fearfreepets.com. This is the Fear Free Podcast Series. I'm your host, Steve Dale. And today I have a special guest host, Dr. Kim Bensavanga of Elenco Animal Health with a fascinating discussion about infectious disease in cats. It's all yours. Welcome, everyone. My name is Dr. Kim Bensavanga, and I'm a consulting veterinarian with Elanco Animal Health. I am pleased to have with me today Dr. Jessica Pritchard for a great discussion surrounding feline infectious diseases. Dr. Pritchard is a clinical assistant professor of small animal internal medicine at the University of Wisconsin-Madison's School of Veterinary Medicine. She completed veterinary school at the University of Pennsylvania, then a rotating internship at North Carolina State University. This was followed by a small animal internal medicine residency at North Carolina State University, where she also completed a master's, which included studies of the basis of immune-mediated disease and leptospirosis prevalence in raccoons. Dr. Pritchard's clinical interests include infectious and immune-mediated diseases in dogs and cats. She shares her home with a Labrador retriever named Charlotte. So welcome, Dr. Pritchard. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Really happy to be here. Before we dive into infectious disease, as a veterinarian that works at a veterinary school, would you please share with us why you are an advocate for veterinary students becoming fear-free certified? And what value do you see in fear-free certification? Absolutely. So um, we are in the process of having all of our first-year veterinary students as part of their health history and physical exam course become fear-free certified. And I think that as educators, what we provide and require of students is what they see us as placing value in. And so if I don't talk about a disease in class and whether or not this is true, students perceive that I think it's not relevant to their practice or to them. And so by providing a dedicated time for fear-free certification, we're telling students that this is really important and it's not just the medicine that's important, it's how you provide it. And it's the bond with the pet and that client that matters. So rather than just saying, hey, this is something that you should really do, we are saying, hey, this is built into this portion of your course. And this is something that we think that you all should do. And it's important that we model that for our students too um, and say, you know, hey, here's a whole course that's built for you to practice what you're learning here. And it's great for us that we have the resource of the fear-free certification because it's not something that we have to build a whole new curriculum around. We can say, here's this great course. Here's the time that we've carved out for you go ahead and and complete this. And we're here to support you along the way. That's so wonderful that it's being built into the curriculum. I know that when I was in veterinary school, that wasn't part of the curriculum. And to your point, not that, you know, it wasn't thought to be important, but, um, you know, if it's not something that we talk about, we may not as students see the importance there. And of course, I think it's something that our patients can only benefit from and ourselves as veterinarians can only benefit from. So we're so happy to hear that you're doing that at your school. So let's talk a bit about feline infectious disease. And specifically, let's start talking about feline leukemia. What do the vaccine guidelines direct us on the vaccine protocols to protect cats from feline leukemia? Yeah, I think this is really interesting because the guidelines, you know, have 
have changed. And so right now, the recommendation is two doses three to four weeks apart as early as eight weeks, and then revaccinating 12 months after the last dose. Then that's for every single cat. So core in those cats for those first three doses. And then annually in cats that have a high risk of regular exposure and high risk being defined as cats that go outside. Um, and we know that this is a really common viral infection in cats. So general cat population, two to 3% of cats in the US and Canada, um, and up to, I think as high as 30% um, in you know outdoor colony cats. Um, so cats that would have a regular exposure, so cats that go outside, um, or cats that are regularly exposed to cats of unknown status, either indoors or outdoors. So if that cat lives in a house where there are a lot of fosters coming through, um, or stray cats that might be coming in, you know, uh, because the owner is a really kind, benevolent person. Um, those cats, even if they're indoor only, would have a, a high potential risk of exposure. So um, right now, the big focus is on protecting those youngest cats um, and then cats that have a high risk of regular exposure um, throughout their adult life. I know that you mentioned that the guidelines have changed over the years, and I still have a lot of conversations with veterinarians when I'm visiting them in their practices about um, what they do for their kittens, and many are still not vaccinating kittens as core. Why is it that younger cats are at higher risk of feline leukemia than older cats? Because that's a question that I get asked frequently. Yeah, and I think it's something that we're still kind of working out because we know from large studies that were done kind of in the early aughts um, <laughs> that uh, younger cats tend to be the cats that are more likely to develop progressive infections. And this is probably due to their less developed humoral immunity. And as they age, they're more likely to end up with either a regressive or an abortive infection. We really want to prevent those progressive infections as much as possible because those are the cats that become persistently viremic. And so they pose the highest infection risk then to other cats because they're shedding it in their saliva persistently. Those cats are also the most likely to develop those FELD associated diseases like um, lymphoma, bone marrow disorders, um, immune-mediated diseases and susceptibility to other infections. And those are the cats that are typically going to die earlier with those progressive infections. So we really want to protect those cats that are most at risk for those sorts of infections. I think also we don't know the lifestyle as veterinarians that that kitten is going to have. So maybe the family says, yes, I'm going to only keep my cat indoors at that first new kitten appointment. But then it turns out that it's actually really hard because they have little kids in the household. And so that cat is regularly escaping out the back door when the child goes outside to play on the swing set. Um, or, you know, maybe they move to the country and decide that, you know what, cats like to be outside and I'm gonna let my cat outside. Um, so we don't know what sort of lifestyle they'll have between that first visit that we see them and when they hopefully um, come back uh, for their annual exam. I think you made a lot of good points about why feline leukemia should be considered core for younger cats and why we should be vaccinating kittens in particular for feline leukemia. Yet the most recent Alanco vaccine compliance study found that only about one third of that population was vaccinated. What factors do you think are contributing to this discrepancy? 
think there are a few things that might be contributing. And one you already mentioned is that the guidelines have changed. So now it is considered core for kittens and one-year-old cats. And that's, you know, different than it used to be. But we understand more who's at risk now and what sorts of tracks this infection might take in terms of the different outcomes of infection. So we can really concentrate our efforts on when we know the risk is the highest. I think that um, getting the kind of the news out there that this is what we should be doing to protect cats is important. But also I think, you know, some of that goes back to, you know, how many injections are we going to give this cat? And if you have the ability to give one injection and protect against all of these diseases um, that we want to protect cats against that are core, then I think that's easier for us to do and we're more likely to do it. So by giving a vaccine in combination, perhaps as a profession, we can help increase compliance in this group of cats. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's a challenge, number one, just getting cats to come into the veterinarian. Um, and once we have them there, trying to make that experience as good as possible for the cat, I think that's really important and for the owner. So if we can say, hey, here are all the diseases that it's really important to protect your kitten or your cat against and we can protect them against them with you know, one, one vaccine today, um, I think is a really great option to be able to offer to families. I agree. And I think that it also really aligns nicely with that fear-free initiative and making for a more comfortable vaccine experience for our patients. So feline leukemia is obviously not the only virus of concern for cats. Is there anything new with Khaleesi virus? Yeah, I think with Khaleesi virus, there are some interesting studies coming out um, of Europe that show that there might be some genetic susceptibility in terms of who gets Khaleesi, um, which is really interesting to know. It's a, it's a great virus to study because we can cultivate it in the lab too. We also know that um, virulent systemic Khaleesi virus has not gone away. Um, and so there were outbreaks in Australia just last year. Uh, so that's something that as veterinarians, we need to you know, be on the lookout for and know still exists in cat populations. It's a virus that um, you know, can, can mutate and take many forms. So we need to be on the lookout for that in cats. Yeah, that's uh, you know, obviously concerning that that's still out there. But what clinical signs would you suggest that we should be looking for that would make us think about Khaleesi virus? Yeah, so it depends a little bit on kind of what Khaleesi virus strain is involved, but the most common clinical signs um, would be ulcerative upper respiratory tract disease. Um, so particularly um, oral ulcerations, lingual ulcerations in particular um, would be kind of a classic clinical sign. Um, we know that this isn't necessarily either a virus that exists, you know, alone in isolation. Um, so cats might also be co-infected um, with herpes or chlamydia or mycoplasma felis, um, but definitely seeing those lingual ulcerations would be kind of the telltale giveaway sign um, for Khaleesi. Great. So we know that Khaleesi virus vaccines have been around for a long time. Alanco has a vaccine that has a dual strain of Khaleesi virus. How does this compare to just the traditional Khaleesi virus vaccine? So a dual-strain Khaleesi virus vaccine, um, I think is great because there have been studies that actually show that it stimulates a broader 
um, array of neutralizing antibodies than a single strain vaccine. And it lessens clinical signs in vaccinated cats when you challenge them with a calicivirus strain um, that was associated with virulent systemic disease. So I think if we're trying to protect cats um, against the most potential manifestations of calicivirus and give them you know, the, the lowest burden of clinical signs um, with exposure to the virus, it makes sense to use um, a dual strain vaccine. Great. It's wonderful to know that we continue to improve upon our vaccines and hopefully provide better protection to our patients. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about how we can elevate the vaccine experience from the viewpoint of emotional health and compliance. So one idea from the Elanco compliance study was to use combination vaccines. And I know that you touched on this a little bit already, but what advantage does this create for the patient? Yeah, I think, especially when we're talking about cats, you know, dogs, <laughs> I love dogs, but you can, <laughs> a lot of dogs, you can distract and you can smear some peanut butter on the wall and you can give them that injection and they don't even notice that it's there. There are definitely some cats that we can give tuna to in the room or some other sort of squeeze treat. Um, but for the most part, we're not going to have the same luck with them in terms of distractions as we are with, with dogs. So we really need to have the opportunity to give them all the protection that they need in fewer injections um, because cats are smart and they're going to be on to us eventually. And so if we're able to just protect them with one injection and then be done, I think that really helps lessen the burden on the cat and on the cat owner um, for anxiety around that appointment. Certainly with cats, we sometimes have one shot, um, pun intended there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so of equal importance, what advantage do combination vaccines have for the veterinarian and the veterinary teams who are the ones that are administering the vaccines? Yeah, I think it's great for us as veterinarians to not have to say, you know, okay, this, if we're going to get one shot with this cat, you know, what is most important for this particular cat for me to choose? You know, we can say, hey, I'm actually getting to protect this cat from everything that I think is important for it to have protection against. And I think that, you know, the emotional burden of being the veterinarian and having to make those decisions sometimes can be really tough. And so having those good combination vaccines takes that issue out of the equation. And then it's left for us to just talk with the clients about, hey, these are the infections that we need to protect your cat against. This is why it's important and we can do it all um, with this injection here today. It gives you more time to actually get the owner on board with why these are important diseases to protect their cat against and less time to talk about, you know, well, if we can't get everything in today, we could, you know, send you home with gabapentin or try this or try that. And I think that's a good point, especially when we talk about how the guidelines have changed and the recommendations have changed. It seems like when we're not using combinations, the first thing that seems to be left out is feline leukemia. So it's nice to, again, have combinations where we don't have to make that decision or make a choice to your point about whether they get everything that they need or not. What do cat parents and caregivers need to know from veterinary teams to ease their fears or doubts about vaccine reactions in cats? Do you think they have the same fears as canine parents do? I don't know that cat parents currently have the same fears as canine parents in that um, 
you know, I think they worry more about just bringing their cat to the vet. And a lot of them don't know that they need to bring their cat to the vet. Um, you know, I have a, a great owner who has, you know, two dogs, um, one dog that I, I don't see that regularly because it's healthy, thank goodness, but that goes to the vet every year. Um, same with the other dog, one cat that I see very regularly for internal medicine related diseases. And it turns out they had another cat that got sick that I had never heard about and it had never been to a vet because it was never sick. Um, so I think it's not as much concerns about, um, you know, going to the vet and what happens there with cat owners and that they don't know that, hey, we, we need to see your cat. You know, have we seen your cat this year? If not, we should, uh, because just like you bring your dog in every year, we should see your cat for wellness vaccines too. And not just when they're not just when they're ill. That's a good point. I do think that there's a lot of cat owners that do not regularly bring their cats to the veterinarian for all of those reasons that you just mentioned. So as veterinarians, it's important that we start those discussions out early at those kitten visits so that they understand the importance of regular visits and vaccination. What should our colleagues look for when selecting a vaccine portfolio for use in cats? it's important to look for a vaccine portfolio that provides everything that they need to protect the cats best. So for me, it would be having those combination vaccines available and at a low volume um, and having vaccines that we know are, are safe and are well tested in cats um, and well tolerated. Those would be the things that I would really be looking for. That makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you, Dr. Pritchard. We're coming to the end of our time here today, but we really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us on feline infectious diseases and vaccines. If you are interested in learning more about Elanco's vaccine portfolio, go ahead and visit elanco.com. Just as a reminder, we do have a full line of low volume feline vaccines, as well as those great combination vaccines that we were discussing here today. And if you're interested in learning more about Fear Free, you can look on the Fear Free website, which is fearfreepets.com. On behalf of both Fear Free and Alanka, we would like to thank you all for joining us here today and have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Great information. If you're already registered for Fear Free, be sure to keep up with all the Fear Free happenings, access the new toolbox items, and find all the additional courses at fearfreepets.com. And of course, if you're not registered, find everything you need to get started at fearfreepets.com. If you're a member interested in pursuing practice certification, get more details on the same site under the Veterinary About section. And if you're a pet owner who just stumbled upon this podcast, you can learn more about the resources we have for you at fearfreepetshappyhomes.com. Happy Homes.com.